Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. No, we can send you a FIRE t-shirt for sure. I think I have the only blue one so far. I was worried, Greg, you might wear the wear the red one, although you mostly wear the blue and the and the black one. I don't really like the red one. My coloring doesn't go well with red. <laughs> I'm, I'm red Lee, so red looks weird on me. When I had hair, it was the color of your t-shirt. <laughs> Blue? <laughs> let's yeah, get on. let's get going. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, joined by who has become essentially my co-host. He's appeared on so many episodes. And I think, Greg, you've been in maybe the last two or three. Uh, I don't know. You've been in a lot recently. You were on the one with Jonathan Rausch, uh, which we published two weeks ago. But welcome back again. Thanks. Yeah, th- thanks for having me. I, I really want to sit in on this one because I'm such a fan of this book. Yeah, and the book we're talking about today is is Dangerous Ideas, A Brief History of Censorship in the West, From the Ancients to Fake News by Eric Berkowitz, who is our other guest on today's show. Eric, welcome. Welcome onto the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you're based in San Francisco, and I I have to be candid and admit, you know, I I know a lot about the free speech world. I know a lot of the writers and authors and thinkers in this space. Uh, But until I had been told about your book, I had never heard your name. So can you give us a little bit of background? Is this your first foray into free speech thinking and writing or, or what, and what got you interested in it? Oh my gosh. Uh, I've been interested in free speech from the, from the beginning. Um, my legal career has been mostly devoted <clears throat> to intellectual property and that kind of thing. But I left the law in the early two thousands and enrolled in journalism school and got a master's in journalism. And became I was a curiosity because I was in my late forties at that point. And I where did you where did you go for journalism school? I went to USC to the Edinburgh School and got a master's. And so from that point forward, journalism, free speech, writing, you know, has been central. Uh, In my legal career, it's interesting. My first case was a, uh, a First Amendment case, and it had a huge effect on me, which was, I always thought when I was coming up, at you know, free speech being a protection for lefties, for artists, for dissidents, radicals. But this was a case on behalf of a captain of the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, uh, who, from my background, was on the other side. And the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, at least at that point, was still run by the people who had smashed the free speech movement in the early 60s, in the mid-60s, mid et cetera. But what this captain had done was work in the election against the incumbent sheriff, a guy named Sheriff Dyer, who really was like an old school, you know, stomp him first and ask questions later cop. And he worked against that sheriff in the election and very quickly found himself in the night shift uh, in the jail. He was demoted heavily for it, and uh, he brought a case. We, we, we brought a case based on freedom of speech, being punished for his political beliefs, and we were a scrappy little law firm, and we were fighting against the law firm that pretty much controlled Alameda County, and uh, the way they pitched the case is this is an employment matter. Who cares? We can you know, shift these people any way we want, 
And we uh, tried it as a free speech case and won big. And that told me that the First Amendment and free speech protects everybody, <laughs> everybody. And it was actually became that much more important to me for that case. Uh, and so, you know, how did I start to write the book? Well, I've written two books previously, long-term surveys of the intersection of sex and marriage and the law. And uh, my publisher, my U UK publisher, was con contacted me and we were talking about, you know, issues that were going on in Britain. And there was this suppression of what's called drill music, which was a very, very hardcore rap music in London from the streets and the those videos were getting suppressed all the time and it was causing a big brouhaha. This is, I guess, back in 2018. My publisher and I realized the way this was being handled in the press, everyone seems to think that censorship issues come up for the first time. Whenever they arise, it's as if this has never happened. And it hit us both that there really hasn't been a book covering censorship and free speech on the long sweep. So to give people perspective. Now, I'm not a professor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a journalist. And we wanted to write it. There's, you know, as you know, as you guys both know, vast literature for academics and for lawyers on the subject of free speech. Endless, you know. But nothing for the smart trade audience. And that is our, so that's what we did. And, and, um, I put my head down and I started reading and I didn't look up for a couple of years. And, and I have to say clearly, I mean, the, the, um, I mean, I was so impressed by this book and it was, it was something that, um, coming from you, that means a lot. Oh no, I, I, I appreciate that. The, um, you know, I, I did my little bit of um, uh, history of the censorship, uh, history of censorship during the Tudor dynasty back when I was in law school. And I did a little bit of academic work on that. But I was always kind of shocked that there wasn't a really good comprehensive book. And I was just you got so much stuff in there. I mean, like like how many how many years did this? It, it, it just I was super impressed by just how thorough it was and how many areas areas you you covered. Well, this book uh, is kind of like haiku uh, in the sense that my American publisher, Beacon, just a, they're, they're just tremendous people, uh, yeah, great. gave me a 100,000 word limit all in that includes titles, that includes footnotes, that includes everything. And footnotes. so in the sense that haiku is 17 syllables, this was, you know, there was a lot that had to be left out. So thank you for the comprehensive comment because... I kept on for two years. It was about a two-year project. And I, I have a huge amount of energy. So, you know, to to keep it. And they weren't like 110,000 words. They were 100,000 words. It was a, you know, they, and so um, it took a lot to pack it in. It reads like the work of a lifetime because, because it um it covers so much ground. And for me, like the, the, the ability to say something concisely is generally something that comes from knowing a lot more than you're letting on, you know, like, like essentially, and that's one of the reasons why I love. I pulled um, him again. <laughs> uh, that, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I have such a respect for popular nonfiction is that, you know, like, um, and I, I don't think it's fluff. I think when I think of the best popular nonfiction writers, you know, like my, the, the person who's going to be my, my book next month, um, book of the month is John Rausch's new book on yeah. institutional knowledge, which I'm absolutely thrilled about. And it's, you know, every paragraph, you know, that he's leaving out another book's worth of stuff or the one that I'm, I'm trying to write about right now, John McWhorter's um, 
absolutely insane book on on nine uh, on on nine offensive words or nine dirty words or I forget what. It, what that, oh, I you mean the thing. George George Carlin thing? Um, the seven words you can't say on, on. It's not about Pacifica. It's actually literally about like the history and etymology of all these different uh, all, all of these different words, and it's you know the, the, God, you how fascinating guy, is that. He talks in perfect paragraphs. It's like unnerving. And his his writing is so tight. And you can have a paragraph that you're like, to write that paragraph, that probably took you about 20 years of research to be able to get that as precise as you just got it. It's well, just I can honestly say that journalism, you know, my, the yes. last 15, 18 years of my life um, has been a really good training in that regard. Is When you have a 500 word limit, you've got to put it all in. So, yeah, concision is important. You know, it's you have to realize who the audience is. You know, I did not write this for professors, uh, even though I'm thrilled that professors liked it. <laughs> I did not write this for lawyers necessarily because they're already steep. I wrote it for people who are interested in politics and are seeing these issues popping up and maybe want some perspective. And also, as I did the research, I found, you know, humanity is an interesting thing <laughs> and the stories are interesting things, which goes to, you know, when your questions of why study censorship in the first place. Yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about some of the themes, but that's uh, sorry. I, I didn't actually write down questions and I know that, um, Nico well, before we get into the themes the of the book, Greg, uh, I wanted to ask Eric, cause we had talked offline briefly that the book, there was some stuff you wanted to put in the book that you weren't able to put in your book because of fear, not necessarily of censorship, but of a violent response. Uh, on behalf of some readers. Yeah, this is an interesting story and 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 it's it's it brings it into perspective I think a lot. Um, in one of the later chapters of the book I I I, I was talking about Rushdie and satanic verses. And I didn't put that much into it in that particular story because that story's been told pretty pretty heavily. But there's a writer in Britain named Keenan Malik who I admire massively. And he wrote about it and about the sweep from the satanic verses in Broglio to the Danish cartoons in Broglio, then on to Charlie Hebdo. Uh, he, he was talking about the fact that Rushi won the battle. I mean, satanic verses was never taken off the shelves, at least in Britain. My God, it caused a lot of carnage, but it, uh, but it was never taken off the shelves. But in Malik came up with a phrase, I wish I invented it, with the internalizing the fatwa, that in the years since the fatwa, we've, we've started to pull punches. We've started to see offense of a group as something that is something to be taken, if not seriously, to be taken in a, well, yeah, to be taken seriously and also to be, to sculpt what we say. So whereas there was, at least from governments, huge support of Rushdie during that period. He was seen as kind of a martyr. When the Danish cartoons issue kept crept up in 2005, those are the cartoons that satirized the prophet and put him in, de depicted him disrespectfully, let's put it like that. You know, governments began to speak out against that. Sweden began to censor websites containing that. And then on and on and on, we began to not stage art exhibits, not put on operas, not... So we're pulling punches. In, in that sense, Malik said, we've internalized the fatwa. Well, in 2018, there was a case, and it blew my mind, in which there was an Austrian woman, a, a provocateur, no question, gave, a, gave a, sem a seminar in which she called the prophet Muhammad a pedophile. 
Well, he did have a very, very young wife, but that was 1400 years ago and things were different. And, and so she, she, she slandered him. Uh, if you can slander someone who's been dead for 1400 years. Or if you can slander a public figure on the statute of the alleged prophet Muhammad. Um. And, and, and she was charged criminally in Austria under a hate crime statute. And she challenged that. And it went up to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which is the court in Europe that hears these things. And they ruled against her. And they upheld the conviction, saying that she had been gratuitously offensive. I'm trying to find this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She said that, that her words were gratuitously offensive and that she had a duty not to, do, not to be so when talking about objects of veneration. And what she said went beyond the, per, the permissible limits of an objective debate. That's what the highest court of Europe said in upholding a conviction. Well, I really criticized that. I thought that was an abominable decision. And what I said was that by caving, by that ruling, it, what I saw is they were really worried about retaliation of violence in response to that. And I said that the court, quote, internalized the fatwa for the entire EU. Well, my publisher in Britain, they're lovely people. They're brave people. Uh, it's a small publisher. They have a huge Arabic aspect to them. And they publish a lot of books in Arabic. And the woman who runs the place, who's a friend of mine, who I admire in, enormously, called me and she said, I can't do it. That line that you put in, it can't be. I said, why? And she said, well, I have a child. We've had, we've had bricks thrown through our window. We've had threats. Uh, this line, caving into the fear, internalized the, the thought to a, there might be retaliation. And this is a woman who's been telling me for two years, be brave, take a stand, you know, and she is, she's an incredibly brave woman. The risks she's taken in life are, are many. But so she internalized the fatwa, essentially making your point. And precisely. And the idea is to internalize the fatwa in this book. So my little book that I'm producing in my dungeon in San Francisco, I mean, I've never experienced that. I'm, I, I'm a, I could be a First Amendment absolutist from the safety of my townhouse in San Francisco. But in London, it's a different thing. And I was being asked to self-censor, and I made the call that, um, that the people I care about are worth more than my absolutism. So we wrote around it, and we softened the language. And the British edition has a different formulation of that. Um, but it's interesting, because even a book about censorship can itself be an inflammatory thing. And even me, a real, you know, I'm not a world famous person, even this little book itself can become an issue. I, and I unsurprisingly have a somewhat controversial view on the, um, on the uh, Muhammad cartoons was that I thought that every newspaper in the country should have reprinted them, not as a political statement. I want to be very clear about that, but that's what journalists do is that essentially, and when, when you see some of these, like, I, you know, d definitely the famous one is the bomb and the turban one. You see a lot of them, they're literally just attempts to render someone who looks like they might've lived in, in, um, in, in Arabia in, in the seventh century, you know? And I feel like people needed to see them to understand the news. And if that had actually taken advantage of the, one of the great forces of nature, the Streisand effect, I think that maybe it would have actually uh, dissuaded at least some, to some degree, some, some of the response when they realized every single time we actually put these in the news, these are going to be back in the news. Well, the, the cartoons were reprinted pretty heavily. A lot of newspapers did do that. 
in Europe. Not in the U.S. Yeah, not in the not U.S. In the, US. The, the Philadelphia Inquirer yeah. made news because it published it in its opinion section. Um, and it made news precisely because it was one of the only publications to do so. Uh, but a lot of a lot of the news sizes in the sites in the United States did not. There was a book about the cartoons. I'm sorry. There was a book about the cartoons published by Yale that didn't about yep. the issue. And at the last minute, Yale pulled the cartoons from a book yep. about the cartoons. And to take absurdity one step further, index on on censorship, kind of like fire. Yeah. Oh no, we 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 know and love them. Yeah, yeah. They they took the cartoons out of their article criticizing Yale for pulling the cartoons. So Yeah, I I had them on the website, by the way, when this came out. And there were times where I was just like, listen, it does freak me out. Like the idea of kind of like, am I putting some of my own staff at risk by doing this? And it was, you know, I I, I definitely get it. Um, and how we actually handle that, because it's it's just one of these things where the idea that that we can we can have free speech, but you can't blaspheme. It's kind of like, but what what? But <laughs> that's not a tiny carp out. Like like historically, that that was kind of like the whole kit and caboodle. That you know, a lot of free speech thinking came from the idea that you can't uh, you you should be allowed to be a heterodox thinker, and it was, and often it was framed in terms of religion. Well, yeah, I mean that's. The- that's the opening of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Well, it's the most important question. It's the, where did we come from? Uh, how did we get here? And the extent you can't criticize others' theories of how we got here and why we're here uh, is, as Greg said, to kind of throw away a lot of human history and, and you know, the reasons that we want to have those sorts of debates and discussion. But Oh, and I want to make a quick pitch because I, I love pitching books that I like. Uh, Tyranny of Silence is, is a quite impressive book okay. um, by, by Fleming Rose. Um, he, he was the person at the center of the um, of the controversy. He, you know, he was the publisher of Jillian's Post-it at the time. And you got to meet the guy because he is a soft-spoken, kindly-hearted Dane. You know, and he did not, he just, there's a long tradition in Europe of sort of roasting religion and the idea that he couldn't do something. He wanted to prove that he could. And it didn't, it didn't really work out. But the book itself is extremely thoughtful. And he talks to actually some people who want to kill him, for example. Um, but it, it's, it's really an excellent book. Well, you know, the urge to censor, Phil Kirby, editor of the LA Times, had a great quote. I just found it the other day. He said, censorship is the strongest drive in human nature. Sex is a weak second. Uh, well, well, I've written two books about sex, so I'm, I might as well hit this one. I'm not quite sure of that, but there's a, there is a, there is an impulse that we all have, both officially, that is, when we have authority over others, and personally, which has been creeping up, which fire is very much involved with, is when we hear ideas that jar us, when we hear ideas that if not hurt our feelings, question what we believe and what we hold dear. There, I, It's not something I'm proud of, but there's an impulse to say, shut up, I'm stopping you. I can't hear this. Even if it doesn't actually have a tangible effect, it's the psychological factor. And that's, you know, one of the themes in the book is the, is fragility. And, and um, you know, I think blasphemy is really a, a part of that. Obviously, the depictions of the, of the prophet didn't impinge on the practice of religion uh, of Islam, but merely having them in the world was, I think, enough to make these to make at least opportunistic clerics uh, make a stink out of it. I mean, uh, Rauch thinks of it as a turning point as well. Like he, he sees uh, Rushdie as one kind of I, not just when everything changed, but when it was clear that attitudes outside of um, uh, publishing had changed as well. And that that was since it was eighty nine. It was when there was a 
uh, dramatic change in attitude about free speech, um, you know, even though the free speech battles had nominally been won only about 10 years earlier. Yeah, we're, we've, we've internalized a notion that in a diverse society, um, we need to attenuate, we need to reduce our commitments to free speech in order to prevent offense to others. And, and um, you know, that gets into a notion of what harm is and, and when speech can be restrained, what, what constitutes harm. And, you know, I know where fire stands on that. And, and I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty close with you guys. I, I, I deeply believe that, that suppressing speech, particularly when speech jars our ideas is, is a way to mutate the human thought process and take uh, jarring ideas and just put them elsewhere where they're, if, if they're destructive to make them more so. The, there's a bit of a historical Sorry, note. I keep on getting in the way of Nico because I'm so excited to talk. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make a historical awesome. note. And then, Greg, you can ask, on, ask your questions about the themes. But uh, back when, and I sent you this, Eric, offline, but back when they were getting ready to publish the paperback edition of the Satanic Verses, there, oh, yeah. there was a concern, of course, about threats and violence to the publisher. So the publishers got together as sort of a consortium to publish the paperback edition so that no one publisher could be identified as the publisher of it. And the Washington Post, I'd sent you a Washington Post story that I'll put in the show notes, uh, quotes publishers, but not any particular press. Because So it, it, it's kind of a heroic and you courageous know, I saw moment. that as a, as a practical response to, to get the message out, to get the book out, to take a stand while also protecting oneself. I mean, it would have been better, I think, if they had not done that anonymous consortium, but you know, you adjust to the times as they are. Yeah, well, I, they, that people had died, you know, in 89 and then the fallout afterward. Uh, so, you know, I can I can understand why they would want to do it. The goal, the goal, obviously, of publishing a book is to get the book out there. Um, and they definitely achieved that goal, even if the publisher wasn't identified. But let's go a little bit further back in history. Uh, Greg, you, you want to lead with your question about the themes? Well, yeah, absolutely. There, there were two that um, I had particular fun with, partially because one's a hobby horse of mine, of course, which is not not surprising. Um, but talk to me about censorship and economic class. Sure. Well, let me find this little business here. Class, if we take, it's not just economic class, it's also social class. That you know, Censorship is as much a question of channeling information as much as it is of suppressing it. One of the other main themes, I mean, all the themes of the book overlap. And, and, and one of the main themes of the book is that censorship simply doesn't work. Uh, that it's, it's, it's extremely rare that, well, yeah, people have been, have been killed. In that sense, it works. People have been put in jail. In that sense, it works. You know, books have been burned. Yes, it works. But the ideas expressed almost invariably live on. And so I think that's implicitly known by authorities. And so rather than almost giving up implicitly to eliminate something, what, we've, what, what, what authorities have often tried to do is channel information either to sequester it, to protect themselves. And so it goes all the way back. I mean, I can tell a story now if you want. One of the stories that opens the book that I think sort of contains lots of themes is the first Chinese emperor. Chen Shi Huang, and I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation. He's the one who unified China's seven kingdoms. 
created China as China exists, started to build the wall, unified weights and measures, et cetera. A warrior, hated, 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 hated. And, and, and we're now in the third century BC, around 210, 215. And he was getting a lot of criticism, particularly from Confucian scholars who were, he was hearing it and it made him crazy. And he, he, he wanted to essentially eliminate history and eliminate learning that was used against him. Confucian scholars were constantly comparing the um, kingdom as it existed to a golden age of the past. So what did he do? He took all books that he could find of literature, philosophy, poetry, and, and, and kept one copy for himself and his ruling, that is the channeling of information, and eliminated it everywhere else. In fact, he also, just for good measure, publicly burned 400 Confucian scholars alive. So from, from that point forward, all of China's literary and philosophic learning was held by him and kept away from the population. In fact, at that point, anyone who criticized him using examples from the past uh, were killed with their families. And so it goes on also with the starting of the printing press. In that sense, books were, before that, were, of course, held in manuscripts. They were single copies, or if, they're, if, they were, if you had enough money, you could make multiple copies. That didn't happen. Immediately when the printing press supercharged the spread of knowledge to the masses, that's when our modern era of censorship really began instantly with the Catholic index of prohibited books, with you know, endless censorship statutes. Um, and they were used against, first and foremost, against Luther, Martin Luther, who, who used his language in a popular style. He, he, he also translated the Bible into German. The, the channeling of the suppression, the movement of information to the masses in a popular style was exactly what upset authorities so much. That's why Luther was, you know, suppressed to the level that he was. It didn't work. Also, on a sexual level, uh, pornography had always been, uh, you know, widespread, uh, at least among people who could get a hold of it. One of the, of course, every new technology is used in a sexual way almost first. And one of the first works to be uh, suppressed was some pretty hardcore stuff coming out of the Vatican itself. There, a guy named Pietro Aretino found some beautiful, beautiful woodcuts by a guy named Marco Raimondi, who was a Vatican artist, reprinted them and reprinted them with language that wasn't highbrow. There was a lot of pornography and flowery language and that instantly they were called Pietro uh, Aretino's postures were became sort of like let's call it the deep throat, the 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 you know instantly widely available uh hardcore pornography available to the masses, addressed to the masses. So along with Boccaccio and Copernicus and Luther if you look at the first list of, of forbidden books, there's Eretino. <laughs> and it goes on in the sense that in the 17th century, you know, one of the main censors, a guy named Roger Lestrange, was very interested in censoring the first news books, the first news newspapers. Why? Because in his words, they make the multitude too familiar with the actions of their superiors. 
keep the information of government in government, keep it away from, from, from people. And his, 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 his main target was, quote, the papers who speak plain and strike home to the capacity of the multitude. In that sense, we don't want the multitude informed. We want to keep the information to ourselves. Blackstone, the, you know, great William Blackstone, the one who pretty much codified British law in the 18th century, was right on board with that, holding that natural liberties are fine and good, but they're wild and savage, and that people need to learn due subordination of rank, that's his his language, so that they'll give due respect and obedience to their superiors. He embraced seditious libel, which was the doctrine that said that anything that criticized or impugned authority was to be suppressed, even, let's say, especially if it's true. And so to that extent, it, it goes on. But the real sort of apogee, the apex of class-based censorship was in the 19th century, right after the, the French Revolution, which scared the daylights out of everybody. And so immediately after the French Revolution, in, after the Napoleonic Wars, particularly in Britain and throughout Europe, Popular press is, is exploding. It's getting taxed out of existence. People are getting hounded. There's a fear of the working class. There's a fear of the working and laboring class. And the response is not to give the working and laboring class rights or material wealth. It's to suppress information that might make them agitated. And we can talk about that. I think we're going to talk about uh, Age of Reason and 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 the others later. How much did Marx have to do with that, though, in the in the nineteenth century? I mean, I know you say it comes Karl Marx, yeah, and just class consciousness. Well, Karl Marx was 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 very much a part of it. I mean, he he was he was his writing, you know, coming after the eighteen forty eight revolutions was you know <laughs> very much suppressed. There is something kind of funny about it, though. Um, his seminal work, Das Kapital, was found by the Russian censors to be too obtuse, too incomprehensible, too, too dense. It wasn't worth censoring. So they allowed Das Kapital to be imported into Russia, you know, in German and to be translated into Russian. <laughs> One of the key mistakes. But it really goes on. In the 19th century, there was this obsession to not portray the ruling class in any kind of a negative way. The idea is to, you know, so that the same plays, if they show authorities in a bad light, could be allowed when shown in theaters for catering to the, to the middle class, but not allowed when shown to the poor class. Tolstoy, some of his stories were allowed in fat, expensive books, but not in little pamphlets. The play King Lear had to be rewritten in Austria in 1826. Uh, for our viewers who most know what King Lear is, it's a Shakespearean play. There's a king. He tries to give his property to his daughters. Mayhem ensues. He goes crazy. He dies abject and screwed up. <laughs> Shakespeare's going to rise from this grave and kill me now. But the play had to be rewritten so that the king didn't die in the end in Austria because no one wanted the the king to be kings to be shown in that regard and also i think it shows in sex as well i mean sex is a i i've written these books so it's on my mind but the the there was a book in england called the fruits of philosophy kind of a stupid little book it's a a, a marriage manual 
marriage manual, which is a sex manual, which you go further, a way to have sex without producing babies. It's a, a, a birth control manual. It had been a lot, it had been around for decades and decades and decades in the 19th century in England. Expensive. These two people, Annie Besant and George Bredlaw, who were radicals, put it out cheap. And as soon as they put it out in a cheap edition, they were put on trial for obscenity. And the same book, which was acceptable for the ruling class, all of a sudden became filthy. And they were put on trial and they lost. It was eventually overturned on a technicality. But Annie Besant, um, who said in who said in trial, isn't it wrong to make information available, not to make information available to the poor, which had been available to the rich for so long? And the judge said, no, it's not. Well, she ended up winning the case, but she lost her child. She was found to be an unfit mother. And so, you know, was the book eventually allowed? Well, yeah. Was there a price to be paid? Yes, uh, as well. And so the class dynamics, you know, just just keep on keep on coming up. Do we see any of those class dynamics in today's, you know, censorship justifications? I, you know, you think about a lot of the justifications or the topics in which historically leaders have sought to censor good government, blasphemy, morals, obscenity, challenges to wealth and privilege, just like you were talking about war. Um, but maybe technology has just become so uh, cheap and prevalent that it's almost impossible to keep information from the masses in in, in that sense, uh, in the sense that you would you would censor it for some. You know, I thought about that. Yeah, is it just impossible now? Basically, is part of the uh, the question. Well, let's just take a you know. Uh, let me give one more historical illusion. You know, Madame Bovary in 1857 was was was. Uh, put on trial for obscenity and the reason given, and people weren't, they weren't shy about it. What they said is this is a novel. Women read novels. This is a novel. I mean, that was the market. Women are weak. Women are frail. This is a novel about adultery. And uh, there's no message in this novel saying that adultery is bad. We have to stop this because it'll lead women toward adultery. Men can read this, but if the, if it's women, no. Um, in the current era, I think if we get into a discussion about cancel culture and about mobs, no, I don't think there is as much class-based censorship now. I, I, because speech is so much harder to control. In fact, I think, yes, I, I, I actually disagree on this. Good. Um, and it's partially my perspective on what's going on in higher education. Yeah. I'm coming from a different economic class. Than a lot of the people that I went to school with. Yeah. Um, I was bringing this up all the damn time. Stanford Law School is a lot of people who don't know that they sound like Victorians sometimes. <laughs> um, and, and they really don't because there's, you know, you know, they're super like, you know, let's talk about uh, talking about sex and, and all, all this kind of like all this kind of like almost like show kind of, uh, you know, and the, 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 like they ha- just like the Victorians, they have some of these things that they want to show that they're actually sophisticated. But when it came to the rules for how you talked, and a lot of times I'm, I was kind of like, okay, you don't like poor people. <laughs> it was something that I brought up a lot. And I was really obnoxious about it. But I, I came from working with um, inner city high school kids in the Southeast and D.C. in the 90s. And, I, and when, when I heard all the rules for the way people talk, I'm like, have you ever talked to a kid from the Southeast? You know, have you ever talked to, and, and I mean, white and black alike. 
um, because it just seemed like the, the prim and properness was uh, they would deny it to their dying word that it was classist. But it was but it was it basically thought that the way the American upper class talks, it's not it's just the way people talk. And it's like it, so I see a lot of classism that doesn't recognize itself as classism. You know, as you as you were speaking, two things came came to mind. One is. It's interesting, uh, you know, in the Victorian era, as blasphemy began to be less and less um, of a crime, there was a book that was put out attacking Christianity. And the judge said, well, at this point, you know, we're, this is, we're now in the 1890s. It's a little bit late. He said, you can just, you, you know, we're no longer such a Christian nation. After all, a Jew had been, Benjamin Disraeli had been the prime, prime minister. Provided that the decencies of controversy are preserved, so pr- provided you put it in good middle-class language, I'll allow it. But if you're a little dirty about it, no. In this case, based on what you're saying, something just popped into my mind. You know, we're now in a situation where the real arbiters of speech are the, are the social media platforms. That's where the action is. And they're... We can talk about this because I think it's fascinating because they've now created sort of a pan-national, pan-legal framework where they will import speech restrictions from Europe, apply them to us heavily through their terms of service. And, you know, Europe, they're much more against hate speech. But what they've done is put in a lot of automatic commands, algorithms to, to, to filter out speech that they don't want. And there's study after study after study showing that that tends to hit the kind of English spoken by African-Americans much, much more heavily. And working class Brits. <laughs> yeah, working class Brits. I would, that's why I was reaching back to the 19th century. And also uh, people who maybe aren't leading seminars at Stanford Law School. Um, you know, so yes, there are implicit and explicit filters of speech and manner, particularly of the, of the lower classes uh, that are now becoming hard baked into our, our speech system. But at the same time, through the internet, a lot of people from the lower classes have found a voice, particularly a voice together that they've never had before. Yeah. For good or ill. Yeah. Well, Greg had to step away and that's fine. Well, we can keep rolling without him until yeah. he comes back. I think he had to take a call. That's fine. I wanted to ask I'm you. Happy to. One of the things I found fascinating about your book, and, and I must have realized this subconsciously, or but I never actually thought about it explicitly, is that free speech philosophy develop, developed very late uh, in human history. I mean, it's really only a 200-year-old philosophy, although you can go back a little bit further to, to John Milton and Areopagitica, and there were you know, there was some discussion surrounding it. You talk about it in, in the Greek context as well. But really, the free speech philosophy and the ideas that we rest upon today to justify free speech are a recent development, are they not? You know, this is when we get into what what actually is free speech, you know, uh, free speech for whom, how free, how broad. You know, you mentioned the Greeks. You know, Athens was a remarkable place in a lot in it really was in a lot of ways. And, you know, Pericles in the famous speech that he gave his funeral oration, which is in Thucydides, made the point that Athenian democracy was built on free discussion, that, that, that you can in Athens raise your voice against 
any citizen can raise his, his, not hers, voice and make their feelings known and effectively speak truth to power and not, and not really be penalized at that. Of course, that was class-based. I forgot to mention that because 70% of the Athenian population didn't count. Uh, it was only male citizens. But, you know, you mentioned Milton. Now, again, I'm not a Milton or Mill scholar, but the, the, we have to see people in their times. Okay. I mean, Milton wrote the Areopagitica in 1644 when, when he had gotten in trouble with the authorities for publishing his pamphlets on divorce without a license. There were licensing statutes back then. And, and so he wrote the Areopagitica basically to acquit himself in parliament to respond to the authorities who had, who had mentioned him. And, you know, he wrote, he wrote, it's beautiful. It's it, the, the phrasing is astounding. And he makes a very, very, he makes some wonderful arguments for open discussion, but he could only go as far as he could go. Okay. Excluded from his, when he says, give me the liberty to utter, to argue freely, according to conscience, above all liberties. How beautiful is that? Quite, except for it didn't include most of humanity. The me was him. The me was a Puritan. The me wasn't Catholics, who he had no end of hatred for, or heretics or anyone else. But, okay, so we can criticize Milton and say he wasn't an absolutist, but I admire him because, you know, even taking the stand that he took. Of course, <laughs> Areopagitica is much more important in retrospect than it was then. It was, pre it was printed in one edition and no one read it. Uh, it. It wasn't reprinted till later. But at the same time, the philosophy of free speech as being critical to human development, as being critical to who, to who we are, and as also being critical to a functioning society, it's not just 200 years. We can go back to Spinoza uh, from the late 17th century, who had already been excommunicated by the Jewish community for what he had written. Famous badass. He was a famous badass. And he made a very good point. And I think he was the first. I could very well be wrong. Okay, Greg would know this more than me. To, to say that everyone is by absolute right the master of their own thoughts. He said freedom of speech doesn't only, it's, it's, it's not that it, it doesn't pull at authority. It doesn't hurt authority. It's actually necessary for peace that the conflict that comes, this is one of Greg's um, holy writs, is that <laughs> the, 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 the conflict and the strife, I mean, that is brought from speech is good for society. It creates peace. It prevents violence. And so I think if we want to talk about one of the first heroes of free speech on an absolute level in the way that we would now accept it, we've got to go back to Spinoza. And of course, the book was damned by the Catholic Church, damned by the Jewish authorities. I, I, I mean, Spinoza was one of these like Mario Savio characters that kept him yeah. throwing his body against the machine. There are so many great things about uh, about Spinoza, and my favorite explanation of him is that he praised God out of existence. <laughs> that essentially he made the world so perfect, the universe so perfect that nothing could be done to it, and nothing would. And it's like that's amazing. But um, now, th now here's a good opportunity for me to pitch a forthcoming book that I'm really excited about. Um, Jakob Mishingama, um, who did a podcast for us called Clear and Present Danger, which I adore, of course. Oh, he um, is the he's the he's the guy. 
if I meet him, I'll, I'll, I will bow. Yeah. He would be, he would be thrilled to meet you. Um, and so, uh, Jacob, uh, of course, of course he lives over in Europe, but he, he likes to come over. He loves New York too. Um, so he, in his book, he talked about people I'd never heard of, you know, like uh, that, that were, that were big, big names. And my, my gr- sort of grand unified theory of free speech is it's not surprising that there wasn't lots of discussion about freedom of speech when it was essentially impossible to reach, to reach a meaningful audience. So of course, if you have small scale democracies like Athens and that kind of stuff, then free speech makes perfect sense, but it won't be a major issue again when you have large scale society until you have something like the printing press. And I think at least for the, for the chipping together of it, I think that the thought about free speech, it had to become more coherent, but I think it started actually really quite fast. Um, the, the, and as soon as there was a print, Press. I mean, that's to me the difference between. I lived in Prague, so this had an influence on me. Jan Hus um, was uh, the Martin Luther of the of the 15th century, and he uh, and the difference between him and Martin Luther, in my opinion, is a printing press. That there was an attempt to do the uh, Protestant Reformation at least 100 years before, and it got stopped um, by. Uh, 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 but it would have been much harder to fight if it hadn't been for, for, the, for, the, for the printing press. So I, I, mean, I think that absolutely Luther was the first media star. I mean, he, he, he was a pamphleteer. The minute he got a criticism, I mean, he, the the minute someone criticized him, he was out with a pamphlet five minutes later criticizing. And so you're, so yeah, you're right. Jan Hus, if he had, well, the, the chops that, that, that Luther had and the ability to disseminate his ideas, then he would have, you know, motivated that. But I mean, the, the the absolutist idea of free speech that we hold dear <laughs> wasn't in the founding fathers of the United States, but it was in Cato, for example. There were these two pamphleteers in the 18th century who wrote under the name Cato who, who just said it. Free speech is the bulwark of liberty. They live and die together. That you can't have liberty, you can't have freedom without the freedom to express yourself. I think, Nico, you, you were wondering you know, where it started. On the level that we understand it on the level that we embrace it it was uh written by i let's they're called they have other names but it's called cato and their pamphlets were really piled up on every tavern table in london beer rings i mean that that was the pop they wrote in the popular style the john stuart mill uh, you take him a little bit to task uh, in your book he's not so much the free speech absolutist or perfectionist that he's regarded as today uh, he had he had his shortcomings as well, just like John Milton. But you also, love yeah, you also that, say yeah. that he, you know, was a man of his time as well. And but it, it's interesting because John Stuart Mill was also a radical for his time, but he couldn't be so radical as to live up to today's First Amendment standards, which are way radical oh, yeah. by 19th century standards. John John Stuart Mill, I know that Greg admires him quite a bit, and and. I do endlessly. Um, he he was a synthesizer. He took all the ideas that we were just talking about, particularly Locke. We haven't talked. We could leave him behind, but there, that he synthesized ideas. He was he 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 looked around. He saw the rising ruling class. He realized that it, we were they were England was never going back to the elitist society that that it had been in his childhood, and. Yeah, I mean, we we could be quoting John Mill till six tonight. I mean, he he his basic point is that any restriction on speech is an assumption of infallibility by a government, and 
that's a falsehood and that, you know, we should value all ideas, even the crazy ones, even the nutcase ones, you know, the guy screaming like a madman on the corner, because what that person might be saying might be true. (laughs) And the rest of us might have it wrong. And so by squelching one opinion, you squelch them all. What, all of that I absorb, all of that I value, all of that I think is right on. What was wrong with John Stuart Mill? Again, we, we have to view him in context. You know, you can't view people by today's standards. One, you know, his, his point that we should only restrict human liberty and speech to the extent that it causes others harm. Okay. Or harm to society. He didn't really define harm very well. Uh, he only had one example, which would be sort of like a Brandenburg example of a, of a, of a person calling up a mob against someone else. That, you know, that, he, it was almost like the Brandenburg, the, the imminent harm, you know, causing a riot thing. But people have used that idea. The notion of harm, I think he could have gone a little bit further to, to talk about what it was, because his ideas have been used now to justify speech that causes emotional harm or offense. So that was a little bit vague. But his main problem that I have with him is all of these wonderful soaring ideas only applied to... Britain <laughs> only applied to mature capitalist societies. And what he said, and it's kind of astounding, I mean, is that everything that he said can only apply to advanced size, not to what, he, uh, and I've got the phrase here, not to those backward states of society in which race, in which the race that is hum- humanity itself may be considered in its nonage. What does that word mean? It's babyhood. It's unformed state. Despotism for them is legitimate. So they can learn. So they could grow. Benevolent despotism. So how I, how on page one, he's talking about all these wonderful opening of speech, but only, but not. And so that was a justification of the British colonial system. Well, he worked he with not, it, right? A, a member of parliament was not going to go so far. He worked at the East India Company, you know, and, and so did his dad, right? Yeah. Like, so he it, wasn't kidding. He was part so, of the system. And yeah, and he was also in Parliament. And oh, right, so yeah. what you and what the three of us would see as critical tenets for free speech in society, we've just talked about class, has to apply to everyone or it simply doesn't matter. When you have speech, when you, if, if we want to go back to Athens and say one third of, the, of society has free speech, but the, but the rest can just suck it up. The way that Mill, you know, again, I don't, if, if Mill was sitting next to me, I would give him a hard time, but I would still pour him a drink. I mean, <laughs> in, in his time, he was a remarkable thinker, and he was read. And and um, my test is is was it better than what came before? You know, um, in terms of you know small incremental, liberal, yeah. You know, um, and 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 I and I think some of these are actually really really big leaps. Um, but yeah, you you will be disappointed if you if you judge things by. Uh, by current standards, and this was, I, I managed to do a, a debate with someone I consider a friend now, Stanley Fish, and and he's uh, we disagree on you know so much stuff, but he's a lovely man, and I and I really enjoy arguing with him. But he pulls out the whole sort of like Catholic thing against Milton, 
And it's like, listen, like I try to at least understand things in their context. It's like this had been a bloody, ruthless war. They, they, they were sending over spies to like actually murder the queen and king for for the, the, and this had the, this had been the, their equivalent of like a nonstop battle with the Nazis. So like the idea that he wasn't ready, maybe he maybe he actually wanted to say that that, that Catholics should have free speech too. But there's no way he, he he felt like he wouldn't be hanged or arrested if he said that. So like but judging it entirely by the standards today, sometimes I think is um. Well, I mean, we we have that repeatedly, and this again is your line of work. When books like Huckleberry Finn, which were censored widely for their anti-slavery messages when it came out, that book came out in 1885, is now coming under fire on campuses repeatedly because of the use of the N-word, and it makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> so. We need to learn to study literature and ideas in terms of their time so we can understand them. That was a radical book. It was a book that questioned slavery, that used satire and used, you know, remarkable imagery to question it. That's how you view the book. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've been talking a little bit about just the idea of, um, you know, I, I try to like bring up kind of old fashioned. I'm, I'm working right now on something where I'm trying to like interview liberals circa 1983 and see what they make of the current culture, um, because that's kind of what I feel like a, 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 a lot of times. And the, um, uh, the the thing that is kind of unavoidable, but but a previous era would have been comfortable saying, is that in order to think scholarly, there has to be some amount of detachment. There has to be an idea that you can step back and and, and, and look at things. And we've that's something that barely even even gets said on campus. And, and I think that part of what we're doing wrong on campus in particular is we're just not doing the initial education and framing. Like, like we, we shouldn't expect students to respect free speech if nobody's ever told them that it's actually a deep and profound value that actually it uh, and it requires a different way of looking at the world. And to my knowledge, most schools don't do that. And then they're like, wow, I can't believe they don't know this stuff. I'm like, no, these are sophisticated concepts. These actually have to be taught. Yeah. I mean, the, the what what somehow and i don't think any of us could really explain it free speech you know why have it okay what is the what's the real basis for free speech well i mean traditionally to allow self self governance that's the michael john you know idea to to allow the emergence of truth um you know and also and this is a more recent concept to allow people to develop personally to allow people to develop their their personal selves, and that only by expressing yourself can you can you express yourself. I mean, excuse me, only by expressing yourself can you develop your faculties. Well, that is, I believe it, but that's also quite. It's a it's a problem in a sense because that personalizes speech into the extent that my personal development, me in the larger sense, is critical. So when I hear speech that scares me or that jars me or that hurts me. And I'm not trained, as you said, to understand that, that jarring speech is part of what's good for a society. I want to stop it. And so this gets back to what we were saying at the beginning, that we haven't been trained enough, <clears throat> maybe because we're too comfortable. We were, we've been raised in a pretty much the apex of free speech in human history is the United States since, since, the, since let's say, since the Sullivan case, since 1964. It's never been like this. And, we, and so we take that for granted. And, and 
we don't really understand that free speech is not only necessary for our own personal development, but for the good of society. And so that means that when you study the N-word in a law school class, as said in cases, or you study Huckleberry Finn, or you're reading the you know racist speech, that's not to read it, to learn it, doesn't mean to approve it. You have to tolerate it. You could hate it and tolerate it at the same time. That is a very hard concept to to metabolize. Well, that that reminds me. There's another book I'm going to pitch. Um, Damon Root's book on um, Frederick Douglass was such so a joy to read. Like not read books. I mean, how, how do you plow through all these books? Uh, I, I listen to them while I'm doing other stuff. Um, I, I, turn, I, I either do audiobooks or I turn them into, and I walk a lot. I, 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 if I, there's, I have one defining characteristics is I'm, you'll see me wandering around Washington, D.C., like kind of all the time. Um, and one thing that made me actually kind of delighted, and I wasn't expecting to really enjoy this as much, is watching John C. Calhoun just reject liberalism. He rejects the founding fathers. He rejects John Locke because he's being intellectually honest to a degree because he wants to defend slavery. And the fact that he actually has to outright say, I reject Locke. I reject the founders. I reject all. And it's like, it's like the Wait, idea. You're that talking had, about the North Carolina senator, the South Carolina senator who became. John C. Calhoun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like one of my. I love that guy. I, I, I love him because I hate him. I mean, he, 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 he's, he, he's a he's a horror show, but but he's being intellectually honest, you know, like that essentially. And, and I think that people need to know the fact that like, he no, no, he thought liberalism correctly was the enemy of slavery. So he rejected it all. Um, and it's it, it was it's a really good book. You know, I mentioned Calhoun in the hate speech section of Dangerous Ideas. That's right. Because I, I was trying. I don't know how successful I was, but I was trying to find the roots of of, of the concept of hate speech, at least in the United States. And going back to the 1830s, <clears throat> there was a, this ocean of abolition, abolitionist literature pouring down from the North to the South. And uh, the Southern authorities weren't happy about that. And they made big, big, this is in the book, made big efforts to, well, first they barred it in the South. So First Amendment be damned. They just barred it. <clears throat> but they also tried to get the northern states to bar it. And the northern states refused. And they, But they did manage to squelch abolitionist literature in Congress for seven or eight years. But Calhoun, who was one of the leaders of this movement, <laughs> he said it hurt his feelings. Yes. He said, he said that abolitionist literature made him feel bad. And it may, and that other slave owners such as himself shouldn't have to hear this stuff because they, they were called, you know, evil. And how do you own other human beings? <clears throat> and uh, that's where I start my American discussion of hate speech that 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 you know that or offensive speech that it. Um, I think Calhoun was, as you said, he didn't hide what he was saying. But yeah, yeah. and I think I read about that the first time in um, uh, 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 Michael Kent Curtis's. The That's People's where I Dollar got it. Yeah. Privilege, which is just such a fantastic book that I, that I, I I pitch all the time. Who should get yeah. him on the show too? Curtis really waded through a lot of congressional records, and and I mean, I don't want his life when he was doing that. But what he came out was <laughs> thank you. Came, <laughs> yeah, what he came out with was an extremely coherent story. On how human on on how human ideas um, excuse me on how ideas affect us emotionally and what we do about it and how we look to the law to to you know 
to protect us. I mean, in the South in 1857, there was this book called The Impending Crisis of the South by a guy named Hinton Helper, which made an economic argument against slavery. And, you know, people were killed. They were hanged for owning that book. And and so they weren't kidding in the South about stopping. Well, they also barred slaves from learning how to read. So you could call that sort of an or censorship, sort of a censorship going even before uh, one is capable of, of reading books. And and that was such a tell to them. I mean, Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass is one of those people that it's almost never better to read something about Frederick Douglass. Rather, you just read him directly because it, 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 he's such an amazing writer. But my only exception to that so far is actually Damon Root's book, which I, I just thought was indispensable. I know we're already at an hour, but I have three more. Oh, we've got so much more to I do. Know, I, yeah. I know there's three more topics that it, maybe we can cram into the yeah, next. Yeah, let's just do it and then, and then you can edit we it. We can yeah. maybe cram into the next 10 minutes or so. Um, the Rwand- I'm with the you. Rwandan genocide, uh, often viewed yeah. as free speech advocates' biggest challenge. You, you address it a little bit in the book. I know, Greg, I think you took a little bit of issue with it in your book review of Eric's book. I want to discuss it a little bit. I, do you yeah. view... Oh, and, and let me and let me be clear about this. I like I wrote a book review saying Eric Berkowitz's new book, Dangerous Ideas, is a masterpiece, a word that I have to use pretty rarely. I probably overuse it, but um, but I really thought it was. Uh, but I have some quibbles, uh, to be clear. Like, there are stuff I disagreed with in the last chapter that I lay out on Eternally Radical Idea, but I, I didn't want that to overshadow just how magnificent I think the book is. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, I, you know, quibbles are fine. Give me just one second here to find, because I have some notes on this. Oh, yeah, here. I've, I've, I've got it. I've got it. I think, Greg, let's, going back to the Rwandan genocide, I think you, um, I think maybe I didn't make myself clear or maybe I was misunderstood. What, what, just to summarize for, the, for our viewers, um, in 1994, in about 100 days, there were 800,000 Tutsis who were murdered. You know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a death toll. You know, Stalin said one person's death is a tragedy. A, mil- a thousand people's deaths is a statistic. So this, the level of murder is kaleidoscopic, and 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 it was government sponsored. And one of the agents of the genocide was a radio station that broadcast, you know, that was effectively a communication center for the genocide. Here is where the the uh, Hutus are. They're in this town. They would give the license plate numbers of cars where they are, they, you know, they, they, urging, moving, pushing. And we in America, you know, uh, Samantha Power did some f- phenomenal reporting on this, on this. What's Clinton doing and his advisors? They're dithering. They had just been stung in Somalia, you know, the Black Hawk Down incident. And what are we doing? And they considered something we had the ability to jam that radio station. If we put a plane in the air that broadcasts a lot of garbage, we could actually jam that radio station and stop it. And for lots of reasons, including, and I have to say it, free speech, they decided not to do that. And to me, it's an, it's an astounding piece of shame. The State Department legal office actually came out and said, radios don't kill people, people kill people. And it was said in the key in the key meetings, if we jam radio, it violates freedom of speech. Now, I think where Greg and I diverted is you interpreted that as me saying that a free speech environment creates creates murder. 
No, that speech, what the radio station was doing was incitement to murder. In fact, the two people who ran the radio station were convicted of war crimes. Oh, yeah. What, what I in any court in the world, it would be illegal. The idiocy and the stupidity of the and the casual cruelty of the Clinton administration to not do what was minimally necessary to do that. I also brought up the radio, the Rwandan thing to sort of tease out the internet that we are now in a situation where the global communications environment is so unified that you could actually from the United States affect communications elsewhere. But, um, you know, the, yeah, and, to, and, and, and to be clear, this is one of those things that, that I said that I, I think the author himself understands this. This was almost as much for people reading it, just to be yeah. clear, because sometimes people will take Rwanda as being like it's a refutation of free speech. It's like, oh, no, 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 Rwanda no. wasn't legal. And like if someone did that in the U.S., that, that would that wouldn't just be um, incitement. That would be actual conspiracy to, to, to commit murder like that. So it, um, that, that was more for the reading audience. That, that, yeah, than, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Than for but I mean, that that that. Free speech is is one of these concepts that, you know, is used so much it sometimes loses meaning. And in, in this sense, free speech was used as a pretext for uh, the American government hesitating to intervene in an African country uh, to save lives. My personal opinion is that was a hideous t- decision that those involved are going to have to live with for the rest of their lives. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's and it's tough because understanding the context of, of just royally screwing it up in in Somalia, you know, like really kind of and, and you know, people are arguing. It's like, how do you stop people like can you from killing people with machetes like it, like in, in, in Yugoslavia, which is where my father grew up, by the way. Um, it was so horrifying that we waited to do anything. Well, all you had to, when it turned out what you had to do was destroy the heavy equipment. Um, there wasn't, you can't do that when it, when it, when it's, it, yeah, Rwanda is something is a great shame and tragedy. Well, but, I think Greg, you, you and I are very much on, on the same page when, when it comes to that. I, th- I thought so. I, like I said, I just wanted to make, make sure that I, that I clarified that for people who read it. So Greg had mentioned. I, I asked this question on a previous podcast. I asked anyone, is there any like movie, major movie that's been made about China and its cultural revolution? And I got, I got <laughs> good luck with that. I got one reader. Who, <laughs> Maybe Disney could do it. I got one reader who sent me, um, who sent me a, a movie and I might be able to pull it up here on one of my to-do lists, but um, I mean, China is the market. If you have, you know, Tom Cruise was, was wearing a, a, a shoulder patch in one of the, in a movie that had Taiwan on it, and and the studio took it off. I mean, Hollywood will never make a movie about the cultural. Well, revolution there, there was one in the nineties, and it was called "To Live." Uh, the, if the listener who sent that to me is, you, you, but you can't find it anywhere. I tried to find it. I was like, I you know, I'd spend fifteen bucks to buy it, and you can't. Um, and there's really no, there are really no books written about it for popular consumption. Like as far there, it was just a purging of dissent of um unorthodoxy of anything and you know us free speech advocates speaking candidly here i know very little about it 
So reading your book and your discussion of it in the introduction, even though it's not part of the West, I mean, it elucidates a lot of the points or brings out a lot of the points that you you seek to make in the book. So can you talk a little bit about yeah, why you included it? that was the first it? anecdote in the book. Yeah. That was the first, I mean, that's the first anecdote in the introduction. And I was wondering, since the book, I had to, you know, Jacob took a, you know, took a, a broader view. I was focused on the, on the world that we live in the West, but I use China and the cultural revolution because like the first Chinese emperor, it's all rolled into one. I mean, that, that, that the, the, the cultural revolution is not only censorship on a, on a fully insane level, it's, 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 it's the eradication of history and it's also the eradication of thought. I mean, just in context, China in the mid sixties had just been through the great leap forward, which was kind of like Stalin's five-year plans. It was this catastrophically screwed up modernization movement, a lot of death, a lot of, there was some dissent coming within the party. And so kind of like, well, what will sometimes happen within ruling classes is when, is when things get a little bit shaky, you just triple down on radicalism and on everything else. And so what, 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 what Mao did was go beyond the party to mobilize the masses, schools were closed to mobilize the masses against the party and against the pop population. And the the targets were, this is brilliant in its craziness, were what Mao called the four olds, okay? Old ideas, old culture, old customs, and old habits. Tell me something that's not included in that. And so what he wanted was a full cleansing, or let's say, eradicating of any kind of society to be rebuilt on his model. So that involved, that is when the moves against uh, Tibetan Buddhism went into uh, hyperdrive, you know, temples were turned into latrines. Monks had to wipe their behinds with their holy books. It just goes on Confucianism. And also, you know, pigtails, were outlawed. Family photos. The red guards would come into houses and grab family photos because it showed a dual loyalty. You could only have pictures of Mao. It went on and on and on. And so what I wanted to draw from that was one, the parallel to the first Chinese emperor, but also the notion that censorship is broader than just the elimination of one or another piece of writing, but it's also can be used to remake society. There's one thing that I found in, in preparation for this that I thought was just amazing when it comes to, to censorship, particularly as it turns to literature. Mao had, his goal was no less than actually eradicating creative impulses on the, on the part of writers and leave writers and artists solely like as raw material to produce work for the state. And here's a quote that he had from 1967, which is now in, where the Cultural Revolution is, is let's say it's in third gear, he heading into fourth. He says, will not Marxism dis destroy any creative impulses? Marxism being him. Uh, it will. He said, um, I think they should be destroyed. Indeed, they must utterly be destroyed. And while they are being destroyed, new things can be built up. Anything creative that preceded him was aristocratic, decadent, bourgeois, etc. So what we see is censorship brought to its 
I guess to its apogee, to 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 a, to a state where the state is really trying to mold thinking at its core. You know, you know, my my family had to flee the communists. Um, it, it, that's why I'm an American. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, we we were serfs who made good. Um, my my, my great great grandfather bought his way out of serfdom in in 1858, and the that's astounding. It's it, it's a crazy story. And my my dad's my dad's life is a horror show. His dad died when he was six. It's all terrible. But the um, and he talks about it with like laughter, you know, because how else are you going to talk about it? But the thing that I when I would end up with arguments about sort of you know, communism, for example, when I finally got people who had a little bit of a soft spot for it, the thing that I kept on bringing up to them was like, well, one, you know, like the environmental damage of the of, of the Soviets, you know, you know um, it sometimes would persuade them, which I thought was nuts to have to make that argument. But just In pointing out, it doesn't, it doesn't deal with um, uh, any any sense of diversity, any sense of moral diversity. And your point on creativity goes even farther. That essentially, it is it's equally plausible to say if you're going to receive a paycheck for forty days, uh, forty hours of work, that it's equally moral to say I should spend that time with my family. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll take it and and do something else with it. It can't. It has to always be something where it is presumed that your uh, primary mor- morality matches that of the state or is to the state itself and therefore can't deal with actual diversity. You know, I, I, I have, I know we don't have much time, but I have something to add to that, which I think is, is, is really significant, which is my, my hero, George Orwell. Um, wrote, if I could plug one thing, you've plugged a bunch of books, but if I could plug one thing, it's his essay called the prevention of literature, which he wrote, right after the war and it's it's pretty much perfect and it it anticipates 1984 which he wrote a couple years later right before he died and so he was kind of working out his ideas and he he was in a post-war environment right where he was a lefty but he was at constant battle with the communists in in um in england who refused and would pretty much excommunicate anybody who criticized Stalin that if as news was coming in as just how bad Stalin was that couldn't be said amongst communists in England and he 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 really took took issue with that and and so the idea of censorship not only being a state thing but also being a doctrinaire thing amongst the same groups is uh is critical and doctrinaire was the original meaning of political correctness. I, I remember saying this like on um, on Twitter, uh, and someone being like, "That's a ridiculous revised." Division. I'm like, actually, it's kind of more the original one, you know, like that. Anyway, well, Mill anticipated all this. I mean, Mill talked about the, the tyranny of the majority. Absolutely, what yeah. was worse, what's even worse than censorship by a government is pressure from your, and when he said the majority, he didn't mean the majority, he meant the loudest minority, whoever, you know, can make the most noise. And that is in, in his mind worse than government censorship because it's more, it hits you deeper. It changes your thinking. And that Mill, uh, if he was alive today, would be on college campuses uh, fighting for what FIRE is doing. Because what we're seeing is the tyranny of the of, of loud groups saying, this professor should be silenced. This student should be censured. You know, this Stanford law student who just criticized a Federalist Society shouldn't graduate. I mean, that's exactly what Mill was talking about. That's precisely what he was talking about. And and 
you know, whereas there is less censorship, I think, by the government now because we've achieved so much, there's a lot more censorship coming. Let's let's call it sideways from our peers and also um, from social media platforms. Yeah. And that and that's when you talk about the unique era that we grew up or came up, um, I always have to point out that we were at this peculiar, wonderful moment in human history when both free speech law and free speech culture, actually, we, we had both of those things. And that, and I think the law is still very strong. But, you know, you lose sight of the, the cultural aspect because it's hard to maintain a free speech culture. You know, I'll never just I've explained this to a lot of people. In Brandenburg versus Ohio, what year was that? That was in the 69, 60s? I think, 69. 69. 69 okay, so yeah. Brandenburg versus Ohio, for our viewers, had to do with a Klan meeting uh, and a guy calling for revengeance against Jews. Revengeance. And, and, and blacks. And, um, you know, it was awful. And he was, he, was, he was put on trial. And he won in one of the, maybe let's say, three or four key Supreme Court decisions ever which basically said that unless what you're what you're doing is imminently that is now going to cause a riot it can be legal and that's and that decision was was voted for Thurgood Marshall the first African American justice and a, a a giant of free speech came in at the majority of that voting for the rights of someone calling for his own death And I've explained that to my children who are intelligent, and I've explained that to a lot of people. And that little fact that someone could have that scope, that that commitment, knowing that it, that when you outlaw speech, when you manage speech, you're not just managing speech against that you hate. You're going to eventually the speech is going to hit the speech that you love. You can't have rules governing speech because they're always turned in the wrong direction. Well, I think we're going to leave it there. We could keep going. I know I've got more questions or topics that I want to address with you, Eric, but uh, I think uh, an hour and 20 minutes is enough for now. I want to thank you for, I love you guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I, I want to th thank you. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Uh, I love San Francisco. Yeah. You're, you're coming soon, aren't you? Um, Possibly in the fall. I'm trying to figure out a shoulder surgery, um, which is kind of lame, but um, uh, hopefully in the fall. Well, I really want to express my my gratitude for coming on this podcast because you guys know what you're talking about, and this is great. Oh, well, thank you for writing a book. I was so I was so delighted, um, and I, I nearly, to be honest, Eric, I nearly didn't read it because I, I you know, I was swamped, and then I started reading. It. I'm like, this is great. So. It, I'll, I'll be reading multiple times. And, and, and I really do think like the, the, the ability to, to, to uh, boil down that much wonderful history that concisely is, is a unique gift. Thank you. And then not only just put it on the page, but also share it, you know, uh, contemporaneously as well. Just in conversation is impressive. Your recall is impressive. So for our listeners, the book is Dangerous Ideas, A Brief, Brief History of Censorship in the West. Two thumbs up. From the Ancients to Fake News. It's out right now. It can be purchased. I'll have a link to it in the show's notes. I'll thank you all again for listening. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter 
at twitter.com slash free speech talk or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. So if you happen to know about a major Hollywood movie about the cultural revolution, send it an email to me there. Also any good book about, <laughs> about the cultural revolution. I'll take that. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple podcasts, Google play. That's how we get new listeners to the show. So thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.